This is Rugger Matrix International, episode 157, Awesome Autumn. Hello and welcome to show 157, the Autumn Internationals are underway. Ewan McKenzie covers it all. I was a bit worried when I saw the selections, there were a lot of new combinations, a bunch of new faces, so it wasn't like they went out there with an experienced side. We introduce our refereeing expert, Stu Dickinson. Players make mistakes and we make mistakes, we're all human. He's trained tennis, cricket and rugby stars. Welcome David Dwyer, our strength and conditioning guru. You've got to make sure that they've got a ball in hand when they're doing all their skills and their fitness stuff. As usual, Rugger Matrix is brought to you by Strike, Australia's leading provider of Bluetooth car kits and handheld devices. Yes, hello and welcome to episode 157 of Rugger Matrix International. I'm your host, Juro Sen. I'll be joined not in a moment by Mark Cashman. He is away for another week, but hopefully in two weeks' time we'll have Pinky back on the program. Well, you heard the introduction. There's no point dilly-dallying and messing around. Let's bring in our special guest from our remote camera in Queensland. And I've got to say goodbye to Les Kiss over the shoulder there. And g'day to Ewan McKenzie up at Ballymore. You've been a hard man to get, Link, but it's good to see you. Yeah, I've done my best to hide, mate, but uh, you have tracked me down and here I am in, uh, in sunny Queensland and uh, keen to have a chat. Okay, mate, we'll talk about Queensland in a moment. Let's move on to the Autumn Internationals and France destroyed Australia. It was a wonderful performance on very little preparation. What did you make of it? Oh, it was a really good effort. Um, I was a bit worried when I, I saw the selections. There were a lot of new comb- combinations, a uh, bunch of new faces. So it wasn't like they went out there with an experienced side. The clubs and the, and the coach, Tom Andre, was complaining about the, the lack of preparation time. So I guess they had a whole heap of uh, excuses that they could have used. But uh, in the end, they didn't need them. They played, uh, played pretty good rugby and uh, they kept the pressure on. Passionate, tackled really well and, uh, and scored three good tries. Well, Australia's had a lot of injuries. A few of those guys are yours, by the way. Do you think they didn't have enough time to cope with that heading into this match? Well, I think you know, Australia's been working together you know, off and on now for five months. So, you know, there's, and, and I think they've gone into that game with a bunch of combinations, which is, you know, I hadn't been able to do that before with injuries. So they actually do have some combinations in the back line. And, uh, and so they're able to go in there in that sense. But you know, it, was a, it was a slippery track and there was a bunch of things that, yeah, it would have made it difficult, but um, yeah, it was certainly a game that would have gone out there to try and win, for sure. Interested in your thoughts about the Aussie scrum? It looked like they were getting touched up, but were they hammered or were they a touch unlucky? Well, actually, I've just actually been looking at the scrums uh, specifically to have a look, and sometimes it's worth having another examination. I mean, the Australia scrummed reasonably well on their own ball. They actually got some reasonable quality, um, but there was a number of penalty situations, and they were all against Australia. I think the penalty count was 8-0. So, and, and I can look at those penalties, and it's easy in hindsight, but you know, there's definitely, uh, you know, you could, those penalties could have gone either way. They went against Australia, and that's probably a function of, you know, maybe reputation or whatever, I don't know, but um, we weren't able to get uh, much parity on that side of it, and anything that went bad, uh, went bad against Australia. So it was a difficult night there, and uh, it cost them uh, a try. And the interesting thing was the last scrum of the game um, was probably Australia's best, took a tight head and, uh, and looked pretty good, and that was a... A very different forward pack that was playing in that last uh, that last eight minutes, and uh, they did a good job. Well, it's a boost for French rugby, no doubt, because depth there is an issue with so many foreign players 
playing in the top 14. I mean, the old boy Mishlak did the job, but it does stress their very shallow depth. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's one of the things they're trying to address over time. They're, they're working towards a 75% you know, local content uh, in the next couple of years. So they've been working for that steadily over time. So that does have an impact. I mean, there's, you know, over 100 Kiwis that play there and a whole heap of South Africans as well. So that actually impacts on the number of players. But there were some guys on debut uh, against Australia and they did a very good job. The halfback, for instance, did a very good job on the night on debut. So uh, they have got the, the quality. Maybe they haven't got the quantity. Uh, and it's a complaint that we have or people often talk about in Australia. But, um, you know, Australia's always been able to fight pretty well uh, in, in world rugby uh, on, on you know, not on big numbers of players or big numbers of players at that level. But uh, at the moment, if you think about it, we've got more professionally played players than we've ever had in history. And uh, so, yeah, we've got a few injuries, but uh, we've still got a lot of players and uh, they're out there training day in, day out. So we've got a few resources to pick from. So, um, yeah, you'd like to think that, uh, uh, if anything, we're in better shape than we've been for a long time. You and the big problem for the Wallabies, they need to score tries. And I'm not just talking about tries for the sake of being you know, outrageous and showing a lot of flair. <laughs> but a try's worth five points. You convert it, you get seven. So there's a big motivation to scoring tries. But the problem for Robbie Deans now is not only does he have to score tries and get that under control, he has to win games. And that's what the Wallabies haven't been doing. They haven't been scoring tries and they haven't been winning games. Now they have to do both. I think on any given day, you're probably going to, you know, in the idea world, you'd like to score four tries a game. Uh, you're probably going to engineer a couple of those. One, one you probably have a bit of luck. You know, one might be off a turnover, an intercept or something like that. So we're certainly not getting much luck at the moment in terms of try scoring. Some of it's about confidence. Um, the rest of it's, you know, they get close to the line, but we weren't able to retain possession or keep the pressure on or there was an error or whatever. So um, we've been our own worst enemy, I guess, at, at times. Um, but that said, I thought the French defended really well uh, in the test. They defended not just in, in terms of the line integrity, but they defended with great aggression and uh, they put a lot of pressure on Australia. We had a lot of, uh, a lot of unforced errors, I guess you could say. But uh, uh, the combination of the two made it very difficult for Australia to, uh, to build pressure. If you can't build pressure on the scoreboard, it's very hard to, um, to, uh, to get there in the after 80 minutes. Well, obviously the Wallabies will be fired up against England this week, but was there anything out of the England effort when they trounced Fiji, put 50 points on, that impressed you? Oh, look, I think, uh, you know, I think they've been building over a long period of time. They've worked really hard uh, on redeveloping or re-engineering the culture. And uh, I think if once, and I think they've done a lot of good work there. So you've got a whole, new, whole host of new, 50% of the players are new in the last sort of uh, nine, ten months. So if you can get the culture right, then the performances will follow. And I think that's what they're relying on. I think Lancaster's uh, very strong in the culture area, so he's made a big investment there. And I think we're starting to see that. A bit hard to tell against Fuji. You never quite know if they've got all their best players available and, uh, you know, with European club football, sometimes uh, some of the players don't, aren't available. So you're not quite sure, but seven tries was, was a good effort. Um, but, uh, yeah, probably a slightly softer game going into, in terms of, you know, in terms of uh, what they need. Australia will be fired up. They'll certainly be looking to atone. And one thing Australia's been able to do is sort of bounce back and, uh, and put on a good performance. They did it against, uh, uh, against Argentina and New Zealand, and obviously they've not so good against France. So we've been a bit up and down, but they have been able to turn it around quite quickly and I'd expect that Australia will, uh, will push England. So it'll be a very interesting game. I spoke to Robbie Deans about the Autumn Series uh, before he left and mentioned the fact that these test matches also account for the IOB rankings, which are vital for the seedings at the next World Cup. So it's really important how well Australia goes. In fact, it's important about 
how all the countries go, but for the Wallabies, this is a big deal. They've slid to third already and could slide further, particularly if England really get you know, a real run on. Yeah, look, it's a complicated system, but basically when you're playing teams around you, you basically replace the, the points, replace each other. So the fact that Australia's played France, and uh, so France have come up and Australia's gone down, so now we're sitting third uh, with England just behind too. So England have got a great chance to push themselves. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting three weeks uh, in terms of where Australia finishes. You know, that those four, top four, makes a big difference um, in terms of the seeding. So... Uh, there's lots going on and off the field uh, that makes a difference at the moment, so uh, interesting times. One of the great wins of the weekend was the Los Pumas against Wales. Terrific stuff. They played with flair and they were pretty damn exciting. But the thing is, Ewan, surely, from your point of view, they must have benefited from playing in the rugby championship. Oh, there's no question. I, mean, I think Argentina has done quite well in, in World Cups in the last decade, but I just don't have the volume of games that other countries have had and I think now with the, uh, the the rugby championship it allows them to play more often and you can see that, you can see their better players getting together and they're enjoying, they enjoy each other's company anyway and they're able to use that spirit on the field but to be able to play more often uh, guys like Hernandez has been injured a lot in the last few years to be able to play consistently in Contepani and uh, you know, he got injured in the game, there's, there's a bunch of good players there, they're very competitive, very tough, very difficult to play against up front I think they showed enough form in the, uh, in the rugby championship to say that I'll test anyone on any given day, and they've done it. Uh, and teams that play around with their selections and take them lightly will pay a price. And, and, and I know Wales had some injuries, but uh, uh, you know, they possibly didn't, weren't, weren't, weren't right mentally, and, uh, and Argentina's put one over them. So I think we know from World Cup form the Argentinians are a difficult beast, and uh, they've proved it once again. If you go back to the 07 World Cup, what an improvement. I mean, they were just content to kick three points at a time. But now they're really using the ball. They're very inventive, and I just think they're outstanding. Yeah, I think they've got their, you know, they've, they've been pretty much a you know, high ball, kick chase sort of side for a long time. We've really seen some of their flair come out in the last, uh, the last three months, and uh, it's pretty exciting. They're sort of, they've got some quite creative players, some of the, you know, and I've managed to coach a couple of them along the way. They're, they're pretty exciting, good guys, and, uh, and they have actually got some skills there, and it's good that they're actually encouraged to use them. So I think it's... Uh, uh, it's a good thing for world rugby that they're that they're really pushing through and giving giving them giving us another good team to watch. Got a feel for our mate Les Kiss Link. He was uh, coaching the Ireland team and they did really well for most of the game, but got overrun by South Africa in the end. Now, what's the way forward now for Ireland? Yeah, I think Ireland have been they've been battling for the last couple of years really. Um, you know, they don't have a massive depth situation going, so you can have one one injury and you sort of. It gets shallow pretty quickly, so that might be one of the reasons. But that said, their their teams also has been doing well. Um, obviously, uh, you know, Leinster and Munster have been traditionally strong, so they've, you know, their, their provinces are doing good things. But uh, they just seem to be on the wrong side of the ledger quite often now. They've had you know those two bigger defeats by New Zealand, but they had that close run game, so they seem to be a bit yo-yo like as well. Uh, they'll be struggling. They were they were leading, and then, then South Africa came back, and it wasn't you know it's a South African team with a bunch of New faces is not their strongest side. Still a good, great team on paper, but you know they've got plenty of guys that weren't there. So I guess that's the worry from Ireland's perspective. And the All Blacks did it again, beat Scotland, but Scotland, to their credit, did cross the line against the All Blacks. So well done to the brave Scots. But mate, the All Blacks all class again. Yeah, they've got a really good, they've got a really good pattern of play going now. They've really embraced uh, and they're playing with a lot more continuity and. Uh, and they're not so much high skill, but their forwards contribute a lot in terms of the way they play and attack. And uh, so it's a really, it is a real team effort. And um, 
they're pretty impressive. You know, it's definitely worth you know, watching them, watching them on video, and just seeing some of the skills around, the, you know, particularly around their forwards, how they contribute to the total game. So they've got a really good blend going, and uh, you know, and, and they're, they're actually doing different things. It's really exciting, interesting things they're doing, which uh, us, us as, a co as coaches, we all we look and see, and see uh, you can see that they've definitely got a purpose about what they're trying to do. It's not just. Uh, it's not individual flair, there's definitely a system and things that they're trying to do. It's really quite noticeable and it's very effective. Ah, interesting to see the Reds pinch a few ideas, Link. I'm always looking to borrow. Uh, just like Steve Jobs did. <laughs> okay, mate, now to your role as coaching director of New South Wales. <laughs> I mean, Queensland. No, the old days, mate. Slip of the tongue there, mate. Now, are you keeping an eye on Richard Graham, who's now the head coach there? Can he do anything under your watch? Well, we've still got the same number of coaches. We've got a pretty good structure. We're really pleased with how it's uh, working. And we, we're running three coaches, and uh, you know, we've, all, we've all got our own area of uh, focus, but we're all, there's a bunch of areas of the game that we, we coach uh, together on. And uh, So it's a good model. It's a model we've used for the last few years. It's worked pretty well. So he's fitting into that and getting to know Queensland and how we do business. And... Uh, you know, so it's, it's not much has changed really. We've got, a, we've got a bunch of new faces in the staff, a couple of new players, but pretty much the same squad we've had. So there's some familiarity and obviously some opportunities and new voices around the edges. So I feel pretty good about where we're at. We've, we've implemented the you know, Reds College, so we've got a, vo a greater volume of players uh, at training, so we're able to do more. And, and, and so we're really progressing and trying, trying to keep abreast, watching the test matches at the moment to make sure we're up to speed with where the game's going and uh, looking forward to next year. been noting on Twitter that Quade Cooper's talking a lot about doing the hard work while no one's watching. So he's obviously copped his medicine for speaking out, but his attitude seems pretty good. How's he going? Yeah, exactly that. You know, he's, um, as, as much as there's been a lot in the papers, he's been getting on with the business. Uh, yeah, he's pretty close to being back on the field. You know, he's uh, got another week or two of rehab. He's just knocking over a bit of leave this week, actually. Uh, so he's he's tracking pretty well, and, uh, you know, I think he's looking forward to just getting out and playing. That's the thing he loves doing the most. So, uh, you know, I think the season can't come around quick enough. So what's the plan, mate, through to Christmas? Do you get some time off? Uh, we'll train through. We've got a lighter week coming up in, in two weeks' time, but basically we'll train through to just prior to Christmas and then uh, back into it. Wallabies will be back in mid-January, and... Uh, yeah, we're starting. Uh, we start the competition a week earlier, uh, mid-February. So um, we've got to get up and running, and uh, we've got a real sprint right through the end of May. Basically, most of our competition's done by the end of May. So we've got to make sure we're on song, got enough players to to get us through. So that's why, again, the college is, is very important to us to give us the the depth to be able to make decisions every week and make sure we've got you know 22 fit guys out there every every game, which uh, we weren't able to do this season. And the Lions series, distraction, or is it a bonus in 2013? Oh, look, I think we're still working around the edges there. Obviously, there's some paper talk around that. There's still plenty to be talked about. You know, it's a it's a uh, historic moment. I've been involved uh, with the Lions as a player and also as a coach in uh, in 01, so yeah, I've seen a bit of them. Uh, you know, it could be the only taste for some players in terms of an opportunity to, to, to play against them. So it's a big moment in the calendar. We're going to make sure, that though, that we still switch on to the uh, the super competition. You know, I don't think we want to be dismissive of that. Uh, our performance counts there. And I think uh, from our perspective, you know, if we play well and do well in the super comp, the, the line stuff will look after itself. So, uh, and we get the opportunity to play them as well. So that's something exciting in the calendar. It's a big year for the game in Australia in 2013. Lost a lot of ground to soccer. Definitely fourth in the marketplace, especially in Sydney and New South Wales. Let's hope the task can kick the game along next year because it's stagnating there's no doubt about that but you and you've done a great job in Queensland so not so much the issue there but for the rest of the country it's a big year and you'd like to see the game kick on 
Oh, I think that's a battle that goes on every week, you know, and that's how we approach it up here. We don't sit here and think that our competitors are you know, necessarily the Waratahs or the Brumbies. We actually think about you know, AFL and, and league and, and football, and we want to make sure that we're competitive in the marketplace, and that's the marketplace for the young the young fans and the young participants, you know. So we've got a big job to play as a team to make sure that we're relevant. We've got, and we provide heroes in the marketplace so that, you know, the kids can attach to the game. And so you've got to have a presence, you've got to, have, you've got to be able to win, you've got to get out there, you've got to touch the fan base. So there's a lot of work that goes on there. We've been doing that for some time. So we're pretty comfortable that we know the formula and we know how to do it. We've got to keep on doing it. We certainly need, as a sport, though, we need everyone else doing the same thing. You know, we need to make sure we've got that success going on off the field. Um, you know, it's not just about the 80 minutes. We're going to make sure that you know the rest of the week that we're still relevant, and uh, that competition is going to go on. It's just going to, you know, that competition for fans and for participants is going to go on and on and on. So you've always got to be relevant. And you've always got to be mindful of that in every decision you make. So uh, um, yeah, it's a, it's challenging times. You know, we'd like to think that um, you got it covered. The minute you take your eye off the ball, you 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 slip backwards in the in, in the Australian uh, sporting mar- marketplace. So you've got to make sure. You're doing everything right. Okay, mate, you always do the right thing by the Reds and all the best over the coming weeks and next season, of course. Cheers, Ewan. No worries, mate. Good to talk to you. There he is, the big boss, the big kahuna, the top dog in Queensland rugby, Ewan McKenzie, and hopefully we'll chat to him sometime soon. Very busy man these days. Now it's time to check in with our new expert on the program. We had him on the program a long time ago, about 100 shows ago, and that was audio only. But I'm pleased to say we now have an expert in the field of whistleblowing, former World Cup referee Stu Dickinson, and he joins us now from our other remote camera in Brisbane. And Stu, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to Rugger Matrix. Absolute pleasure, Jiro. Nice to be here, mate. Now, Stu, you've left the realm of refereeing and you're in the corporate sector. How's that working out for you? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a bit different, a few longer hours and... Uh... Uh, but look, loving the challenge, you know, so it was, uh, had a really, really good time uh, refereeing and travelling the world and doing all those great things, but uh, all good things must come to an end and uh, it's now time to close the chapter on that one and then, uh, then go on the next part of life. So Stu, take us back, when did it all start? How long was your career? Oh, well, I mean, it all started when I was younger, when I was about 12, so uh, just played and refereed when I was at school and then had a couple of years of Colts rugby, so... Realistically, 1988 was uh, was when I'd started with uh, Sydney referees, as it was back then, and then New South Wales, uh, and then worked my way through the ranks. And then 96, obviously, when rugby went professional, there was an opportunity there to uh, to go part time, as we did in that first year. So I took that, and then 97, uh, they offered us full time contracts. So I guess like the other four guys when we started, that uh, you didn't want to be on your deathbed and say, I wonder what that journey was like. So took the journey, so it was 97 through to uh, through the end of 2011. Referees are no doubt a different breed, and you played and refereed the game as well. Did you actually enjoy playing the game as well? Yeah, look, it was great. I think uh, it was one of those things that gave you a bit of an edge, uh, knowing what the laws were and how you could exploit some of those things, and uh, and I guess you know gave you a better understanding holistically of the game. Uh, and then the other thing is it also made you have a look and realise, you know, could you play at the highest level or referee at the highest level? And I knew that uh, I was not going to make it as a, a Wallaby player. Uh, but, you know, I thought, well, I was enjoying the refereeing and could give that a tread and see how that went. So uh, the, the rest is history. Clearly understanding the game as a player is important for a referee. So what age do you think we should be bringing these players through? And should we wait until they mature a bit? 
because clearly understanding the game as a player is really important. Oh, look, I think the programs that, that, that we've got in place now are really good where they're identifying the kids a lot earlier and putting school scholarship programs together because a lot of the times you'll, you'll find that it gives these kids an avenue, either the, the kids that know they're not, not going to cut it playing at that level or, uh, or that aren't enjoying the playing side of things and then of course you get the other part where those kids that are injured that have those uh, unfortunate injuries where, where they can't actually play but then they're still involved in the game. So I think that's, that's the biggest thing and, and selling it as that as, as, as an involvement in the game and making referees a part of the game. Well, you've had a background in law enforcement. So I guess for you, the law of the land is now the law on the pitch and back to the law of the land again. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's, uh, and that and back to the commercial world and the things I was doing beforehand, it's, uh, it's about dealing with, uh, with situations in, in given parameters, which is the law book in rugby or the rules and policies and regulations in a, in a corporate environment. So that's what it's all about and just, just getting the, the best you can out of it. I think since 2003, the World Cup in that year, the game has changed a lot for the referees. A lot of whistleblowers have retired now, and you're one of them. Have the referees been good in that time? Are they good now? And are we expecting too much of them? Oh, look, I would, I would say that we've got different generational change now, as you said. Uh, I think certainly the fitness, fitness levels and and the referees now are completely different to what was done in the past days and the game is completely different so you, you can't compare eras you can't say that this was the the best person overall and that's no different with with playing as well uh, i think the the biggest thing around that is that that obviously the game has got quicker but but i think the biggest change that's occurred and and has needed to occur is is i guess the, the players and coaches taking responsibility for what they do on the park Certainly when we started back in 96 and 97 where we pushed the envelope in terms of the games and, and, and the way we refereed and, and the way that the game was wanted to be sped up and played, uh, it, was a, it was a different style to what was played in the Northern Hemisphere and, you, and then you come forward with that, that at, at that time you, you had three disparate groups really with Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, whereas over time now with that and then with the Northern and Southern Hemisphere referees that internationally through Sanzar and then through the, the, the European Cup guys and then into the IRB, everyone's singing off the same song sheet. And, and the other part that's, that's worked well there is that the players and coaches have been forced to come in and, and work as a group. Uh, in the previous times it would be, here, you guys as referees fix this mess. And as referees, all, all we can do is, is make decisions based on what players do. If the players are, are coached to go out there and kill the ball, then we can only react to them killing the ball. And, uh, and so the, the whole point out of that is that if, if the players and the coaches do what they're meant to do, play within the laws and the spirit of the game, and they have, they have an input into that, everyone has ownership of it at the end of the day, and it's, and it's a far better product. So when you read the paper the next day, don't tell me they don't, and you guys as a group copper caning, how does it make you feel together? Oh, yeah, look, look, it is, and, and I guess it's like anything. You've got to you've got to deal with what's fact and what's fiction, and and there's a lot of fiction around because it's much easier for a coach just to put some blame and, and put the emphasis somewhere else. You know, there's not too many coaches are going to come out too often and say, you know, Fred was terrible and he cost us the game because at the end of the day, like refereeing, uh, players make mistakes and we make mistakes. We're all human, and that's uh, and that's what happens in the games. 
you know, it might be one in a hundred times when, when you can actually look at a decision from a referee that does actually cost a game. Yep, we'll miss a forward pass or you'll miss a knock on or there might be a, uh, something happen in the game. But at the end of the day, all those things even themselves out. There's not, there's not one thing that happens if you, know, if you miss a forward pass in a game when a player gets through another seven players and they miss seven or eight tackles and they score, you know, sure, the referee missed a forward pass, but they still got through another seven players and missed tackles. So that that's life. And, and I guess the criticism comes with that because as a society, I suppose, a lot of the times people want someone to blame. Stu, if you look at a team like the All Blacks, they usually demolish the opposition. So the referee hardly ever plays a role in the paper the next day, at least, in deciding the game. Whereas... A lot of my friends in the Northern Hemisphere in particular often complain about the fact that you get a random penalty deep into injury time that decides a match. And I think that's the big beef that a lot of people have. Suddenly the referee has that decisive call very late in the game. And i got to say that's a big issue that I get often talked to about. And it surely is something that uh, we don't like the game having been decided by a random whistleblow deep into injury time. Oh yeah, look, I, I completely understand that and, and, it, and it does happen. I mean, at, at the end of the day, from our point of view, um, we'd rather have the players decide the game. Uh, but that's not to say that at the end of the time you, you, you can't cop out either. Uh, but it, it's all about making those decisions within context. And I, and I guess it, it's about consistently making decisions based on that on the right information at the time uh, and it's not to say that people aren't going to get that wrong that happens but but nine times out of ten you're hoping that, uh, that what you are making is that decision you make there in that same set of circumstances in the first minute you will make the same decision given the same set of circumstances in the 80th minute and again it gets back to that thing you know if if, if the referees warned you to keep your arm up or keep the scrum up and the and the players are, are trying to do it legally and do the right thing and somebody else is, is opting out and not complying within law, then I guess you've got to expect to be penalised. Um, and the big thing for the players in that situation is if, if they've earned, you've got to give the teams and the players the, the penalties they deserve. If they've earned the right that they've smashed that scrum to, to smithereens and the guys, the loose heads not binding or, you know, tucking under or whatever else or rolling through, then, you know, you can't say, well, I'm not going to penalise that because this might cost someone the game. That, your job is a decision maker and, and that's life. Now, I've been cut down many times, laughed at, by Casho in particular, about suggesting two referees for our game. Now, I want to know what your thoughts are. If we had a second person refereeing with you on the field, so you've still got your two touch judges or assistant referees, would it help in cutting down the breakdown mistakes and the offside calls as well? I'd be really, really interested in to see how you think that would work out, or is it a waste of time? Oh, look, I can understand completely the arguments that people have, but I think at the end of the day, you've got to keep it keep it simple. It's a simple game. Um, you've got one guy out there in charge, and you've got the other officials with them to work together. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's a collective ownership of players and referees and coaches um, doing the right thing. And there's enough talked about before the games where we've got the checklists of, you know, the tackler, tackle player, arriving player, offside lines, obstructions, etc. Where talk about that sort of that, that big five that's been around and everyone's aware of it. So I think it's just important you, you deal with that uh, and making sure that uh, you're you're working to those laws. If you start adding more people, then what you end up getting is 
who's actually going to make a decision and, and, and you're getting away from somebody having that responsibility. I think the biggest thing in, in the role is, is you know, you've, you've got clear clarity around what your role is and what you're meant to do. Yep, we'll miss an offside, the same as a player, maybe accidentally offside or think they're onside and, and that's life and that happens and that's the, that's the nature of sport. Yeah, it's interesting you say that it's not a complicated game, but I really believe it is a complicated game. Maybe it's complicated because of all the bloody laws that we have, but certainly if you get a layman who's not used to playing rugby union or seeing rugby union for the first time, I can tell you, being honest, if it was a simple game, they would pick it up straight away. So it's certainly not a simple game in terms of a game like rugby league, which is pretty basic in soccer. So I think uh, rugby in that regard, when it comes to the breakdown, can be quite complicated. And I really think it puts the pressure on you guys and in the middle. So, you know, maybe we can simplify it a bit more with simpler rules of the breakdown to start with. Let's not even go to the scrums. Oh, yeah, look, it, it can be at times, but I think the simple facet is, and, and the laws, I understand what you're saying about the laws, and I think one of the things that they have to do is, uh, is, is revisit the law book as, as they are doing. I mean, it's a bit like the Tax Act, where you've got, you know, one addendum upon another one, you know, the third part of the fourth act of the, the Fifth Amendment and so on. Uh, but I think the simplicity that we've had all the way through is tackler, tackle player, arriving players. I think the biggest thing that's come in now is, is around that situation of... Uh, of that, the, the tackler being able to come from any side, I think maybe it's time that they reviewed that to, to have a look and say, well, perhaps that guy that makes the tackle has to come around from the other side and, and enter through the gate rather than having rights to the ball picking up. So that way the arriving players are just focused on staying up and driving through. Uh, and then the other thing around that as well, it probably harks back to your, your previous question around that is, you know, I know a couple of us spoke about it uh, in the last few years, um, around a bit like the tennis side of things of you know coming with the times and and actually giving the the, the captains a, a couple of challenges in a in a in a half or whatever those numbers happen to be um, keep it short and simple but you know there are times when people can miss something and, and the players know there's times where they throw their arms up and it's all a bit of Hollywood acting but there's definite times and you know it as a referee when they've said mate there's definitely a knock on there or there was a forward pass and you can see it and if there's an opportunity for them to have a challenge of that it's not undermining the referee, it's not undermining the game, it's just trying to get the right result because of circumstances where you may miss something. So I'd, I'd like to think that uh, one day they might have a look at that. Yeah, good idea, Stu. Very good idea. You know, there's a lot of innuendo when it comes to the All Blacks that referees live in fear of them. I mean, is that something that's the height of ridiculousness for you? Oh, look, I think, uh, I think in, from, my, from my point of view, uh, for me, it was, uh, it was all about dealing, dealing what's in front of you. Uh, and, and for me, it was all about making it um, uh, a fair contest. I, I would say to the teams beforehand, you know, I'll, I'll make sure it's a fair contest and it's up to you blokes to sort out whether that's even or not. Um, and, that's, and that's a different thing. You know, if you, if you get the fair uh, hit at the scrum, then if the dominant team gets over the top, well, that's fine. So I, I think that, that's the thing that I'd always looked at. Um, and I think sure there can be some intimidation there for some of the top sides and, and some of the really good coaches and teams that, uh, that um, you know, for, for younger referees coming through, uh, that they add a bit of pressure there and I think, I think the, the, the good teams do it well where it's a, a collective I suppose from not only the coach and the captain and, uh, but then there's also a buy-in from uh, the media at large around about, you know, how good this person is or how bad this one is and something like that because uh, trying to tap the human emotions I guess from uh, from a lot of these guys. 
Here's one for you. In the National Rugby League, there's been a, a lot of issues with the refereeing. Standard one thing, but there's been a lot of back chat by the players, a lot of dissent. And the relationship with the referees appears to be very loose, very informal. So players told to do things by their first name, etc., called offside by their first name. I'd be really interested to see what you think about that. Would you prefer a game to be played where it's in a more formal nature, you know, number four, you're offside, or pack down straight, number one or two or whatever? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, look, from, from my point of view, certainly uh, it, I would never have called players by their first name uh, unless it was a one-on-one situation where we were away from anything or and that and that would include the captain. So even if even if it was, you know, number five was the captain, Victor Matfield, for argument's sake, of, of the Bulls or something, it would always be five. And then if you're having a one-on-one conversation with, uh, with him and somebody else, so it would be, you know, Victor and Fred, listen, we've got to sort this out or whatever because... Um, I mean, A, you've got to know everybody's name, and then given, given our game around the world with the various uh, the nuances of uh, pronunciation of names and all those sorts of things, then uh, it can cause all sorts of dramas. But uh, from a personal point of view, I just think it sounds pretty ordinary at the end of the day where you're saying Fred, Dave, Matt, Pete, whatever, get on side. You know, it's just all about numbers. They know their numbers, and it's not derogatory. It's just about setting a standard and, and a line there of, of respect, both from us as referees to those players uh, and, and from the players to the referees because I think given all the changes and everything else I think one of the, the greatest things that's still occurred with rugby um, has been we've kept that ethos around respect for the match officials and respect for the game itself. Great answer Stu, really good answer and of course we are always on first name basis here on Rugger Matrix except for Casho, maybe we can call him number one you're out or number three whatever side of the scrum he allegedly used to play on. Right, Stu, thanks for your time, mate, and enjoy corporate life. We'll speak to you soon. Oh, well, looking forward to it. Thanks for, for having me, mate, and, uh, and looking forward to, uh, to being with you over the next little while. Thanks again to Stu Dickinson. He'll be joining us regularly, don't forget, and our first duty with Stu next time around, we'll be talking about the little tweaks that are going on in the current series and what future they have in the game. Now it's time to move along to another part of the game that is absolutely vital. And without him, you can't really prepare a rugby player to play the game, the modern game that is. Joining us for the first time is our strength and conditioning coach, our expert, a former Waratah man. I knew him from his old days there. Got a great rugby name. His name is Dave Dwyer. And Dave joins us now from our other remote link, this time from Maroubra, just down the road from where I am in Sydney. And Dave, thanks for joining us on the program. G'day, Jero. How are you? It's good to see you. Yes, very good. Thank you very much, Dave. You've been all over the world coaching strength and conditioning programs in professional tennis. You've also done the Pakistani cricket team, really interesting, and, of course, rugby union. What about all those sorts of sports? Are they vastly different, or do the core things remain the same? No, you're right. The, the core stuff can be quite the same, as long as you're putting it all together as far as the movement's concerned, uh, whether it's rugby or cricket. If you can analyse the movements... That gives you a better understanding of what's required as far as the body's concerned in the particular actions. So there's obvious differences. I mean, you've got a line-out jumper as to you know a fast bowler or a spinner or a wicket keeper and a, and a halfback. There's a lot of similarities. You're looking at analysing a movement. You're looking at making sure that you get the best out of that movement for the player. 
and uh, and making sure that it's it's specific to what their role requires of them. Let's talk rugby in a second, but a very quick question about the Pakistan training. What was that like? Oh, look, for start, it was an honour. I mean, it's the highest um, highest sporting honour that the the code has in, in that particular country. I mean, as far as sport's concerned, it's the eyes always, you know, seems to be on the cricket team, what they're doing, how they're performing. And uh, along with the pressure, you know, comes hopefully sometimes the rewards, which was great. Uh, a 2020 World Cup win in, in 2009 was phenomenal. Um, you know, and, and I also rank that up there with the ability that we came away with to try and prevent injuries over that time. I mean, our coaches had, for the vast majority of the time I was there, you know, uh, most of the players, if not all the players, on board to be selected for just about every tour. That's a big issue in Australia, by the way, keeping fast bowlers fit. From a professional point of view, when did it all start for you in strength and conditioning? Look, I guess the Waratahs was my first major uh, major role and uh, and what a learning curve it was and, and the people around me gave me so much out of it during that time, it's, it's hard to describe. You know, before that, it was looking at trying to build various resume um, items. You know, I worked over through Randwick Rugby Club for a little while. Australian under-19s, I managed to, uh, to be involved with one or two tours that they had. Um, even I spent you know numerous years with country rugby in the cockatoos there, which was an absolute uh, you know great time involved with some phenomenal people. But at the same time, they gave me an opportunity to build my skills and really try and uh, impart you know some of the training ethics that I like and and want to be involved with rugby. So it was a really good time. You, you've got to build your way through it. It's not something that will happen overnight. You're not just going to jump into. Uh, now a high-level um, position such as the Waratahs or Fiji or Pakistan um, overnight. And, and once you build up to that, then you get to that position and you've got to try and take it with both hands and, and make it yours. Here's a big one for me. The physical preparation from a strength and conditioning coach can sometimes overshadow what you're there to do in the first place, and that is prepare players to play rugby union to play the game, not live in a gym. Are you mindful of that? Oh, too right. I mean, you, the, the, mo, the, the basic function of a, of a strength and conditioning coach for rugby is to make them functional and be specific these days. You really just can't get away with, uh, you know, whacking on the stubbies and the volleys and going out for a 10K run along the, along the concrete. These days, you've got to make sure that everything involves... Uh, no time limits based on how long the ball is going to be in play. You've got to make sure that they've got a ball in hand when they're doing all their skills and their fitness stuff. And in the gym, you're looking at making sure that the, the player is functional and can operate and do everything that's required skill-wise throughout the game for their particular position. So, look, it's, it's, it's changed these days. Um, it, it's certainly something that's evolved over time. Um, and I think we're in a better space for it. From a junior's perspective, when do you introduce players to the gym nowadays? Look, these days I think, you know, through the, the private school systems and the public school systems and, uh, and even the Institutes of Sports are starting to recognise that uh, it's, it's never too early. Um, having said that, you know, three-year-olds tend to opt out of it. Um, 
No, look, I think that you're probably starting to target an age of 13, 14 when kids are really getting a bit more awareness, spatial awareness of what their body can and can't do. Uh, And if you can teach the right training ethics without making it completely focused about how heavy, how big and how fast they can get um, and let them build into their bodies over time, but teach them good training ethics, teach them good training techniques, we're going to you know, avoid a lot of what we call that baby giraffe type syndrome where they, they get to an age where they're potentially able to compete at elite sport and international level sport, but don't quite have the body strength and awareness um, you know, to be able to fulfill the role that's being asked of them. So we, we really do, you know, I think we can't start early enough, but you're looking around that 13, 14 mark where we want them in there regularly you know without being overdone as far as november goes this is a really strange time of year isn't it because you've got players in the middle of their season playing in the northern hemisphere then you have the southern hemisphere teams going north at the end of their season then you have the southern hemisphere domestic players who don't go on tour and they're in their pre-season this global game is all over the shop Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got to make sure that you've got the eye on, eye on the ball and you know what all your players are doing. It's, um, it's something that's got to be balanced out. And, you know, while one group are going through the hardest pre-season, hopefully possible, to get them into shape for the upcoming trial matches at the end of, say, January, um, the other group are, are still, at this point in time, involved in heavy physical um, test matches. So it's hard to balance those loads, but... Now, while those guys are out of your eye just at the moment, you've probably got in the back of your head their recovery schemes uh, when they get back, you know, around December. But a lot of your focus will tend to tend to be on the squad that's right there in front of you at the time and, uh, and try and make sure that they're prepared as best as possible. When the other guys get back, well, then they become part of your focus. And that good communication link between the national squad and the state squads will... Uh, what allowed these guys to slip right back in come January so that their trainings, you know, they haven't missed a hell of a lot. What about the All Blacks? How much do you think is down to their strength and conditioning preparation? That's a tough one. Um, look, I don't think that there is internationally at the moment something completely different in strength and conditioning that they're doing. I mean, there's, there's no Australia 2 keel somewhere over in New Zealand that the strength and conditioning coaches don't know about here. I think that's it's more in line with the focus of what the national sport is and what every person wants to be, every rugby player in New Zealand strives to be. So perhaps they wanted a little bit more. It's, is it a skill thing? It's, it's hard to say. I wouldn't necessarily say that um, there's this little hidden secret over there. But they do seem very well prepared. They seem like uh, they're quite advanced. And I guess that's purely from a results point of view. If their results weren't as good, would you say that they're still well prepared? Yeah, that's a good question. But I will say they manage their players really well. I won't say that they do a better job than anyone else, but they do a damn fine job. They really do because they know that uh, you know, at any instant their position probably can go right from under them, the trapdoor can go. So unless they're managing their bodies, unless they're managing their loads, unless their skill levels are high and, and their mental focus is on, then they're probably going to lose their spot. Strength and conditioning plays a major part in that, obviously. And 
and they seem to really know what their body can and can't do. They seem to balance out their recoveries quite well and, and they just have this big pool of players to draw from at a high quality, don't they? So they're, they're really well prepared. Now the argument is the ITM Cup, the, the next level up, and is that what provides them with an advantage? It's hard to say, but they really do seem to have you know all facets balanced, strength and conditioning, skill, um, that next level of player, and, and they continue to get results. I want to cover this subject with you in depth when you come back onto the program very soon, but it's recovery. And I've got to say, the amount of playing and travelling that these players have to do on top of their gruelling training schedules is fairly arduous. But I've got to imagine in the recovery process, sleep has to be right up there. I know it is for me. I mean, I've, I've managed to uh, probably see a, you know, a couple of sides of it in regards to that question from cricket perspective where we're playing 12 months a year and the travel is dramatic. You're going from country to country, time zone to time zone. Then you're looking at rugby and, and the travel seems to be even further, as you say. You know, you're looking at travelling large distances. Yes, sleep is one. Uh, it's a combination, I think, that the coach and the strength and conditioning coach and the players need to gauge. So probably the best uh, piece of advice or, or device that we use is the wellness, well, well-being sheets. Um, players fill in a, a quick survey. They tell us how they're feeling, how their body's feeling. Um, I'm not necessarily someone who will die by data, but this gives us a bit of an understanding and, and builds a profile of how players recover after major games. You're looking, I guess, you know, your foods straight after games, ice baths. You're looking at compression tights these days. Sleep patterns are another big one. The next day activity, what the, uh, what the turnover is as far as games from one game to the next is. So after you've played one game on the weekend, how many days is it until the next game that you've got, playing loads, training loads. Nowadays we use GPS, which gives us you know kilometers, distances, speeds, collisions, all that data which we can put together to try and make sure that we're looking after these guys and getting them ready and 100% you know, come the next game. Okay, Dave, great insights into strength and conditioning. Really enjoyed the chat. Look forward to catching up with you just around the corner at the bra very soon. But thanks a lot, mate. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's been great. Good to see you. Well, that's it for show 157. It's been great to have your company. And don't forget you can embed us in glorious HD in your rugby blog by going to our Rugger Matrix YouTube page and just use the embed code there. Select a 1080, it's glorious. Uh, you can also see us in 1080p on the iTunes store. Don't forget to try it out and download us. It's been very popular so far. Keep it coming and please get a chance, if you get a chance, uh, write a comment too on the iTunes store. Uh, thanks to our guests, Ewan McKenzie, Stuart Dickinson and Dave Dwyer for joining us. Those guys will be back very, very soon. Don't forget to check out strike.com.au. Enter the code Rugger Matrix and you'll get 10% off as well. It'll be great speaking to you. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Talk all things rugby around the globe. And Mark Cashman will be back to join us. Until then, enjoy your rugby. Have a great day.